0: Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The word blessed is the Greek word logitos. It is defined by Strong's as worthy of praise. Helps Word Studies defines the word as properly speak well of, to celebrate by praising, is only used of God the Father and Jesus Christ, God's Son. It is God who fully abides in Christ, who is worthy to be praised, eulogized, and spoken well of, teaching us that that honor, which is solely reserved for God, should never be pursued by man. To do so implies a man believes himself to be some form of a God himself. The initial reason God is to be eulogized and blessed begins with how he has blessed us, Christ's church, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The promise to Abraham, and extending to his seed, Israel, was that in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In respect to the church of Christ, her blessings are heavenly, eternal, and holy spiritual in nature. They are intended for the soul and spirit of a man, "...purposed for his inward fulfillment and happiness. They are not simply external comforts and pleasures. Like God, they are spiritual blessings and holy in nature. Yet with all spiritual things, a natural man, one born of the flesh, possessing only a body and soul, would neither treasure nor desire the holy blessings purposed for the saint in heaven. Simply because, since God is the source of such blessings and his own holiness and righteousness is contained in them, then any who rejected God on earth would never enjoy being in his presence in heaven. The holiness of heaven would disturb him, even as the righteousness and justice of God would anger him. Hence, just as the flesh lusts against the spirit today, so would it tomorrow, if ever unrepentant sinners were allowed into heaven, which, of course, will certainly never happen. Because God is eternal in spirit, then it is fitting that the blessings purposed for his new children are likewise eternal and spiritual. God's generosity is also observed when the blessings given to the redeemed are all-encompassing. Since it is God who purposed to save men through his Son, he surely would not hold back anything for those now redeemed by him. Next, the blessings reside in Christ and in heavenly places, as there is no existing blessings for man apart from being found in Christ. All truly spiritual blessings are reserved for the saint in heavenly places. The Greek word for heavenly places is uperenos. Strong's gives its definition as of heaven. Its usage is heavenly, celestial, in the heavenly sphere, the sphere of spiritual activities, Met divine spiritual The word is used five times in Ephesians. Where the word is used now? Ephesians one three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And now Ephesians one twenty, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians two six now and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.10, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And last, Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. By taking a bird's-eye view of this epistle and observing how many times the Greek word is used, we can perceive Paul's attempt to direct these early Christians' eyes upward, since all the Christian eternally possesses resides in heavenly places, and Christ is seated in heavenly places, and is also in heavenly places that we have been raised to sit with him, The Christian's true home is in heaven with Christ. It is also the church of Christ's transformation and glorification, which is intended to make known to all heavenly principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. And Ephesians 3.10 again, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What this verse reveals is that the Church of Salvation and Transformation has for one of its important aims to reveal to the entire host of heaven, including heaven's angelic beings, the manifold wisdom of God. It was from heaven that Lucifer descended into the earth, as he had himself been an angelic creature. Thus the Lord desires that all creation should know, including even heaven, that Satan's power to deceive man is not even remotely equal to God's wisdom to save him. The ultimate war also that will occur when Michael and the angels of light overcome the angels of darkness will be a heavenly war, concluding the struggle that saints experience today when they wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Hence, the struggle now engaged in on the earth will have its ultimate climax in heaven, Now believers can do no more than wrestle with these evil entities. But soon, by heaven's might and in God's timing, all spiritual wickedness will be destroyed. Where God's spiritual blessings are said to be reserved for us is in his Son, Jesus Christ. It is his person in whom we have believed who is both the source and cause of us being lifted up into heaven. These hidden blessings are also Defined as unsearchable riches, unable to be either traced or found out. Ephesians 3.8 Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Greek word here is, Strong's defines it as, that which cannot be traced out. Its usage is, that which cannot be explored and is incomprehensible. By this definition, it should not surprise us that to our human minds, even after being lightened by God's Holy Spirit, the riches that are hidden in Christ are unfathomable. So great are these riches and blessings that no man, even great spiritual man, can properly grasp the full and true magnitude of how abundantly God has blessed those called to himself through his Son. Hence, even as believers cannot now fully see Christ, Until their bodies are transformed into his own image, so also are the riches found in him beyond any present human ability to truly appreciate. And just as the believer yearns to see Jesus Christ perfectly but cannot, because of the present earthly limitations, so also are all blessings found in him beyond full human comprehension." This teaches us that the great majority of the Christians' heavenly blessings lie beyond observable human sight. And just as the universe that we live in cannot be found out, and men do not know the true extent of its expanse, hence it is referred to as the observable universe, so also is the glorious heavenly realm of God, far beyond man's limited comprehensive ability. The heavens declare the glory of God. They reveal that even as men cannot fully understand the extent of perhaps the infinite physical universe, so are Christ's riches, those found in heaven, and God's ways, the manner in which heaven is run, even further from being able to be found out. Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Matthew Poole on this verse, He says of God's judgments that they are unsearchable, therefore not to be complained of, censored, or to be narrowly pried into, and of his ways that they are past finding out. The same in sense with unsearchable. It is a metaphor from hounds that have no footstep or scent of the game which they pursue, nor can men trace the Lord, or find out the reason of his doings, end quote. Verse 4 now of Ephesians 1. According as he, God, hath chosen us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Those purposed to inherit the spiritual blessings spoken of are those chosen by God in Christ. Revealing that entrance into God's kingdom is by divine choice, and not accidental chance. Hence, all who will share with Christ in heaven will only do so because first they were chosen by God to do so. It is for this reason that Christ's sheep will respond to only his voice and not respond to any other imposter coming in Christ's name. Because saints have been selected for heavenly habitation before the foundation of the world, God has given them an intuitive spiritual awareness to be drawn to the very one, Jesus Christ, in whom their call and ultimate glory resides. When believers are called to Christ, then there will be a divine power and influence that accompanies the call. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Barnes on this, you are called... The word called here does not refer merely to an invitation or an offer of life, but to the effectual influence which had been put forth, which had inclined them to embrace the gospel. In this sense, the word often occurs in the scriptures and is designed to denote a power or influence that goes forth with the external invitation and that makes it effectual. The power is the agency of the Holy Spirit." End quote. The single and most fundamental reason that the Son of God is man's Savior is because in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 now. For in Him, Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It is not simply that Jesus is the Son of God, but all the deity and fullness of God, the complete embodiment of the Godhead, dwells in Him. Because the fullness of the Godhead resides in God's Son, He is able, through His own deity and fullness, to save those called to heaven through Himself. Benson on Colossians 2.9, Believers may be filled with all the fullness of God, but in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Verse 10 now of Colossians, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. What makes the believer complete in Christ is because the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him, so that from this spiritual fullness, Christ is able to save completely and thoroughly those born in sin. It is the glory, power, and deity of the Son of God that is the foundation of the believer's salvation. In the mystery of Christ, it is Christ's own fullness that saves and makes whole the Christian in any other religion, including all human religion, wherein men attempt to make themselves whole and complete through themselves. It should not be surprising which religion saves man and which cannot. The religion of Christ, the religion which consists of Christ's own fullness and provides for the necessary salvation of those called to heaven through him. Through this, man is made complete. In regards to human religion... This religion entails men's efforts to make themselves worthy of God through their own self-development and improvement, while diminishing or fully rejecting the ministry of God's Son. In this religion, man remains incomplete. The Greek word for make complete, plero, Strong's defines it as to make full, to complete. Helps Word Studies defines the word properly, filled to individual capacity, to the extent it is meet or appropriate. What we can see by these definitions is that believers are made full and complete through Him in whom all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. It is thus through Christ's own spiritual fullness that saints are made worthy to have fellowship with the holy and spiritual God. Because of who Christ is, He possesses the full ability to save those who come to God through Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, Christ, should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him, Christ, to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Barnes on Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father, the meaning is that He chose to confer on His Son such a rank, that in all things he may have preeminence, and that there might be in him all fullness. Hence, by his appointment, he was the agent in creation, and hence he is placed over all things as the head of the church, that in him should all fullness dwell, that in him there should be such dignity, authority, power, and moral excellence as to be fitted to the work of creating the world, redeeming his people and supplying everything needful for their salvation. This is to us a most precious truth. We have a Savior who is in no respect deficient in wisdom, power, and grace to redeem and save us. There is nothing necessary to be done in our salvation which he is not qualified to do. There is nothing which we need to enable us to perform our duties to meet temptation and to bear trial, which he is not able to impart. In no situation of trouble and danger will the church find that there is a deficiency in him. In no enterprise to which she can put her hands will there be a lack of power in her great head to enable her to accomplish what he calls her to. We may go to him in all our troubles, Weaknesses, temptations, and needs, and may be supplied from his fullness, just as if we were thirsty, we might go to an ocean of pure water and drink. Because it pleased the Father to make all the fullness of the Godhead dwell in his Son, Christ now has sufficient authority to save those called to God through himself. Ultimately, it is because God is in Christ, and Christ is in the saint that makes the believer's salvation possible. None but God can save. Hence, not until God presented himself in the person of his Son was the true Savior of man born. To therefore believe in and yield to the Son of God is to believe in and yield to the authority, might, and sovereignty of God. To receive the Son in sincerity and truth is to receive the Father in whom his own fullness bodily dwells. The Jameson-Fawcett Brown Bible on Colossians 1.19. All the fullness, namely of God, whatever divine excellence is in God the Father. The Spirit presciently by Paul warns the church that the true fullness dwells in Christ alone. This assigns the reason why Christ takes precedence over every creature. For two reasons, Christ is Lord of the church. One, because of the fullness of the divine attributes, of God dwell in him and so he has power to govern the universe two because what he has done for the church gives him the right to preside over it should dwell as in a temple this indwelling of the godhead in christ is the foundation of the reconciliation by him hence the and colossians 120 connects as cause and effects the two things the godhead in christ and the reconciliation by Christ, end quote. The first element of the mystery of Christ is how God has made all the glory, power, majesty, and supernatural authority to dwell in his Son. The second element of the mystery of Christ is how God has united those who have believed in the Son of God to share in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Hence, it is first Christ's glorification and the power and authority of God given to him that is the foundation of the mystery. But secondly, how Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification is communicated to those who believe upon him. Ephesians one twenty three, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on Ephesians one twenty three, his body. He is really, though spiritually, the church's head. His life is her life. She shares his crucifixion and his consummate glory. He possesses everything, his fellowship of the Father, his fullness of the Spirit, and his glorified manhood, not merely for himself, but for her, who has a membership of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Fullness, the filled-up receptacle. The church is dwelt in and filled by Christ. She is the receptacle. Not of his inherent, but of his communicated, plentitude of gifts and graces. And his is the fullness. Inherently, so she is his fullness, by his impartation of it to her, in virtue of her union to him. She is the continued revelation of his divine life in human form, the fullest representative of his plenitude. End quote. When Jesus was risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven, this allowed for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is this spiritual gift, which is part of God's own nature, which provides the strength for believers to remain faithful to God and keep His commandments. Thus, where mankind was previously fallen because of Adam's transgression, and captive to Adam's sinful nature, now through God's second Adam, Jesus Christ, men are raised and lifted up from a state of unholiness and unrighteousness to a new spiritual state of being made through God's Son, both holy and righteous, in love. In the end, nothing but God's own divine love could prompt him to save those who in their flesh were previously resistant to his will and heaven's authority. Because of God's love, the believer is united to Christ, first in death, then in resurrection, ascension, and ultimately glorification. It should be noted as well that none can truly and freely serve the Lord until they have been first freed from the fallen and corrupt nature of Adam. Hence, for men to freely worship and serve the Lord, the power of sin must be broken over them. Like with Israel and the bondage they suffered in Egypt, not until Pharaoh was destroyed by the flood and had perished, was Israel free from his authoritarian rule over their lives. The physical captivity experienced by Israel in Egypt is a biblical type of the sinner's bondage to sin. A captive man cannot move freely, nor walk as he fully desires. His captivity makes this impossible. Hence, when a man is enslaved by sin, he is restricted because of his own sinful and defiant nature to fully follow God and remain subject to his will. Thus those born solely of the flesh are as captive to sin's internal control over themselves as those born in physical bondage were to Pharaoh. Like with the Israelites, they would never be freed from bondage unless a power greater than Pharaoh freed them. For the Israelites it was Moses. For us it is God's son. The children of Israel also gained freedom from their Egyptian bondage, not from any of their own strength for they possess no power on their own for such a miraculous deliverance. This was to be the work of God and His Redeemer Moses. The same is true in regards to the believer's bondage to sin, because it must be Christ's power and not any ability that men possess through themselves to be freed from sin's captivity. Not until spiritual freedom is experienced can we know that through identification with the Son of God the nature which previously bound sinners has been destroyed, for no man can truly follow the Son of God until first freed from sin by Him. Romans 6, six. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this verse, the apostle now grows more definite and vivid in expressing the sin-destroying efficacy of our union with the crucified Savior, that our old man, our old selves, that is, all that we were in our old unregenerate condition before union with Christ, crucified with Him in order, that the body of sin, not a figure for the mass of sin, nor the material body considered as the seed of sin, which it is not, but as we judge for sin as it dwells in us in our present embodied state, "...under the law of the fall, might be destroyed in Christ's death to the end, that henceforth we should not serve sin, be in bondage to sin. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love." Holy, as stated previously on page 7 in our first chapter, is the Greek word hagios, defined as sacred, holy. Its usage is, set apart by or for God, holy, sacred. Those chosen by God in Christ have been purposed to be a holy and sacred people, set apart for divine service. This is also why no worldly-minded man who treasures carnal things above spiritual things should be considered as Christ's own. Those saved by Christ are also purposed to be a witness for God, revealing His presence and faithfulness to His word. Hence, just as the coming of Christ himself proved the faithfulness of God to send Israel's Savior to the world, so also are those saved by him purposed to reveal God's presence in the world. Hebrews 2.13 And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Hebrews 2.13 is a quote from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob. And I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Just as Isaiah, as a type of Christ, was a sign to the world of God's faithfulness, so were Isaiah's children also purposed to be a sign. Isaiah's name means salvation of Jehovah. His two sons were likewise purposed by God to be signs of God's presence in the world. Isaiah represents Christ in type and his sons a type of Christ's church. The pulpit commentary on this verse, And again, behold, I and the children with God hath given me. In the midst of general dismay and disbelief, the prophet Isaiah stands firm and undaunted, presenting himself as a sign as well as a messenger of the salvation which he foretells. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. The children thus associated with himself, as signs appear to have been his two sons, their symbolic names, Shirjaseb and Mearshalahaspaz, the first of whom he had commanded to take with him, Isaiah 7, 3, on his first visit to Ahaz, and the second of whom, Isaiah 8, 3, had been born to him by the prophetess, and named under a divine command. His own name also may be regarded in the sign as symbolical, meaning Jehovah's salvation. If then the words of verses 17 and 18 are quoted as those of the prophet himself, and they are certainly his own in our Hebrew text, he is viewed as himself a sign in the sense of type of the Emmanuel to come. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible also on this verse, Behold, I and the children sons, brethren, and children imply his right and property in them from everlasting. He speaks of them as children of God, though not yet in being, yet considered as such in his purpose, and presents them before God, the Father, who has given him them to be glorified with himself, quote. The saved of Christ have been purposed by God to be Christ's possession ordained by him, to become members of his own spiritual heavenly body. Yet this calling is not according to human merit, improvement, or works. This call has not come through any worth of man. For who could rightfully debate that believers are the cause of their salvation if God has revealed that they were purposed to be saved before they were even born? Hence, just as with God's prophet Jeremiah, the Lord knows who has been purposed to serve him, before they are even born. Jeremiah 1 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. The Geneva Study Bible on this. Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. And before thou wast born, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet to the nations. The Scripture uses this manner of speech to declare that God has appointed His ministers to their offices before they were born, as in Isaiah 49.1 and Galatians 1.15. For Jeremiah did not only prophesy against the Jews, but also against the Egyptians, Babylonians, Moabites, and other nations. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges quotes here, I knew thee, meaning not mere acquaintance, but choice as a consequence of knowledge. The parallelism of contrast, frequent in the poetical books of the Bible, shows this to be the sense of the word in Psalm 1-6. The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Genesis eighteen nineteen. For I have known him to the end that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord. And in Amos 3-2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will visit upon you all your iniquities. Before thou camest forth, I sanctified thee, consecrated, and this is in reference to Jeremiah, consecrated or set apart for my service. It is solely because of God's eternal purpose to save that any are saved. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ellicott's commentary on this, And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. We are told in the next clause that the grace was given before the world began. Therefore, our works could have had nothing to do with the divine purpose, which was resolved on by God. As Christendom observes, no one counseling with him, but his own purpose, the purpose originating in his own goodness. Calvin pithily remarks, If God chose us before the creation of the world, he could not have considered the question of our works, which could have had no existence at a period when we ourselves were not. That which practically makes the sinner worthy of heaven is the blood of Christ, which provides for his redemption. That which has been consecrated by blood, as revealed in the Old Testament, is made holy and worthy to enjoy union with the Father. It is thus the blood of Christ, then the Holy Spirit of Christ, which provides the groundwork for those chosen by God to ultimately stand holy and without blame before Him in love. Hence, both the blood shed by Christ and the Holy Spirit sent by Christ are essential for true salvation. This giving of the Spirit is what Jesus defined as being born again. Ultimately, it is spiritual birth and not fleshly works, which enables entrance into Christ's coming kingdom. It was also this previously hidden revelation, which reveals what is necessary to be saved, that Jesus instructed Nicodemus in. And in John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Though Nicodemus was initially drawn to Jesus because of observing his miraculous spiritual power, now his interest is in the person of Christ himself. Before coming to the Lord, this ruler of the Jews properly surmised that the signs, miracles, and wonders done by the Lord could not be possible unless God was with him. By recognizing the power of God, made visible through his son, Nicodemus positioned himself to be able to be brought into a completely new understanding of what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. What this teaches us is that first it is spiritual power that draws men attention to the divinity of the Savior, but then heavenly inspired spiritual revelation, which leads them to come to know how to be saved. Practically speaking, the power of God awakens the sinner's heart so that the Word of God, contained in both the written and living Word, can save him. Hence, both the evidence of divine power and accurate spiritual instruction is necessary for any person to truly be saved. Salvation is supernatural. Therefore, it will require a supernatural force contained in the person of God's Son to actually save a man. It was also this powerful demonstration of the Spirit that separated Jesus and the twelve from the Jewish religious leaders of Christ's day. What Nicodemus observed in Christ's ministry was vastly lacking in the ones who held the highest religious offices. It is also worth noting, as is common today, that still in most worldly religion, even if it takes on the name of Christ, divine power is not thought to be really needed, as long as some preferred religious tradition can replace it. Yet in true Christianity, for God to be properly witnessed to, divine power must be evidence in those who speak for Him. Ultimately, it is spiritual power that reveals the presence of God, without which it is very credible to debate if the Lord is even present in Christian ministry. All those also filled with God's Holy Spirit will manifest a degree of Christ's own spiritual power, for none can receive the Holy Spirit and not have spiritual power accompany it which is the true witness that Christ lives in those saved by him. Acts 1.8, But you shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 3 now, John, Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because of Nicodemus' willingness to be taught by Jesus, for this was his ultimate purpose in coming to speak to the Savior, this opened the door for this ruler of the Jews to be instructed in the way of salvation. The Greek word for born is Geneo. Strongs defines it as to beget, to bring forth. Its usage is, I beget, of the male, of the female. I bring forth, give birth to. Helps word studies defines the word as properly beget. Procreate a descendant produce offspring, passive, be born begotten. Ultimately, what Christ taught Nicodemus is that to enter the kingdom of God, men must be first begotten of God and become God's offspring. The Greek word for again is anathen. It is defined by Strong's as from above. Its usage is from above, from heaven, from the beginning, from their origin source, from of old, again anew. The birth that Jesus boasts to Nicodemus concerning was a heavenly birth, spiritual from above and completely unique from anything previously seen born of the flesh. This spiritual birth needed to descend from heaven. Hence, even as it is impossible for any man to birth himself into the natural realm, equally certain is that it remains even more impossible for him to birth himself into becoming a son of God. This must be the son of God's work as it cannot be through any power or ability of sinners themselves. John one twelve. But as many as received him, to them he, Christ, gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe upon his name. The Geneva Study Bible on John one twelve. But as many as received him, to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The Son being shut out by the majority of his people and acknowledged but by a few, regenerates those few by his own strength and power and receives them into that honor, which is common to all the children of God, that is, to be the sons of God. He condescended to give them this power to take them to be his children, end quote. Verse four now, Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, the figure of the new birth, if it had been meant only of Gentile proselytes to the Jewish religion, would have been intelligible enough to Nicodemus, being quite in keeping with the language of that day. But that Jews themselves should need a new birth was to him incomprehensible. Nicodemus' thoughts, though not unreasonable by human standards, reveal the great gulf that lay between the religion of the day and what Jesus revealed is necessary for true salvation. It is also likely that Jewish ordinances so preoccupied those in religious offices that prophetic revelations of the past were long ago forgotten, and if not fully forgotten, surely not anticipated in being fulfilled. It would be this spiritual ignorance that Jesus corrected Nicodemus for not possessing. John 3.10 Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Barnes on this verse, a master of Israel, a teacher of Israel. The same word that is in the second verse is translated teacher. As such a teacher, he ought to have understood this doctrine. It was not new, but was clearly taught in the Old Testament. It may seem surprising that a man whose business it was to teach the people should be a stranger to so plain and important a doctrine. But when worldly minded men are placed in offices of religion, when they seek those offices for the sake of ease or reputation, it is no wonder that they are strangers to the plain truths of the Bible. And there have been many, and there are still, who are in ministry itself to whom the plainest doctrines of the gospel are obscure. Quote. It is not uncommon today, but sadly very common, that in the professed Christian church, and amongst many of its leaders, that the plain language and revelation of Jesus Christ is not adhered to, that the necessity of being born again to enter heaven is lessened to some other foolish human standard. Because also many prefer human religion and its traditions over the true gospel of Christ, Christ's words are often neither taught or adhered to. This is undoubtedly true. Whenever sinners are not taught their need for repentance, faith, And what is critical to enter the kingdom of God, which is to be baptized by Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. The Lord will not change his standard for salvation, and men should not tempt him to think he will. Verse 5 now of John. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In E.W. Bollinger's book, Figures of Speech, It is stated that being born of water and of the Spirit is the figure Hendites, where two things are mentioned but only one thing meant. The inward spiritual cleansing of the Holy Spirit and not simply the outward washing of the flesh is what is necessary for true salvation. Where John's water baptism was symbolic and was aimed to awaken people to their sin and the need to repent for it in preparation for the Messiah's coming, Ultimately, it would require Christ's spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit and a fire to actually save men. So that if a man had undergone only John's baptism with water and had not been baptized by Christ through receiving the Holy Spirit, then the process of salvation is far from complete. Since John's baptism with water and Christ's baptism with the Spirit possess two totally different purposes, John's to bring men to repentance Christ to provide for their salvation. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, a twofold explanation of the new birth, so startling to Nicodemus, to a Jewish ecclesiastic, so familiar with the symbolic application of water, in every variety of way and form of expression, this language was fitted to show that the thing intended was no other than a thorough spiritual purification by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Indeed, Element of water and operation of the Spirit are brought together in a glorious evangelical prediction of Ezekiel 36, 25-27, which Nicodemus might have been reminded of had such spiritualities not been almost lost in the reigning formalism. Already had the symbol of water been embodied in an initiatory ordinance in the baptism of the Jewish expectants of Messiah by the Baptist, not to speak of the baptism of the Gentile proselytes before that, and in the Christian church, it was soon to become the great visible door of entrance into the kingdom of God. The reality being the sole work of the Holy Ghost. Titus 3, 5, end quote. Verse 6 now. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nothing could be more distinctly spoken to help Nicodemus understand what was necessary for entrance into Christ's coming kingdom than the reality that that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Hence, just as natural birth equips and prepares men for earthly existence and earthly habitation, so must spiritual birth do the same for heavenly existence and heavenly habitation, instructing us that to enter heaven men must be born again with the very same spiritual nature as God. Because God is spirit, to become one of his heavenly children, men must receive his own holy nature. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Barnes on this verse, As a consequence of your being adopted into the family of God, and being regarded as his sons, it follows as a part of his purpose of adoption, that his children should have the spirit of the Lord Jesus, end quote. Verse 7 now of John 3. Marvel not that I said unto thee you must be born again. Barnes on this, wonder not. It is possible that Nicodemus in some way still expressed a doubt of the doctrine, and Jesus took occasion in a very striking manner to illustrate it, end quote. It is not uncommon when men hear that they must be born again to enter heaven, that there is a degree of astonishment that fills them. Hence, very rarely, and not until a man truly believes in both the Son of God and his spiritual baptism of the Spirit, will wonder be replaced by faith and doctrine. The reason we have taken so much time to study Jesus' words to Nicodemus in teaching the book of Ephesians is because only when Christ's words are both heard and believed will man properly understand how through God's power, and not their own, they must be saved. Salvation is of the Lord. And the need to be first born of God before entering heaven categorically proves this. None also shall be found holy and without blame before him God, without possessing the Holy Spirit sent by Christ. It is this divine nature that is proof of spiritual adoption. Last, let us remember John Bunyan's words in his book, The Narrow Gate and the Heavenly Footman, when his opening paragraph reads, In this it is my intention to prove plainly by Scripture that not only the coarse and profane, but many great who make a profession of faith will come short of that kingdom, End quote. Amen.